We're going to continue in the Word this morning in our book uh, study of the Gospel of Mark. We've been doing it for a while, and we will continue to do it for a while. We might take a break along the way and do some other stuff, but we are, uh, we are celebrating the Gospel of Mark. I wanted to give you a quick update while we have an intermission here, uh, because we, many of you heard we went to the Pastors and Leaders Conference last week, and for those of you who are praying for us, we want to say thank you. It was awesome, awesome time. It's one of those things where you go to it and you wish like everyone could go. Like I wish everyone here could have gone with us. It would have been so cool. The more the merrier. So uh, fantastic time to be had, uh, was had by all. You can chat with myself, Mike Dumsdorf, JC Harrison back here in the corner. That was all that was able to go. Steven up homesick and we're going to have more details about that. But I just I say that to you because we don't want to like keep that. So, you know, share the blood. Drew, Drew, Drew. Gosh, I'm, uh, Drew, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, uh, Drew Harrison. Raise your hand, Drew, in the back. There he is. Woo, Drew running slides also at the conference. So if you have any questions about how awesome it was, only ask Drew. Don't ask anyone else, just Drew, okay? That's it. All right, <laughs> put him to work. But we were super, super blessed. Awesome, crazy week. It's kind of funny because a couple of folks who were in jerseys this morning I've seen, and it's, it's, I kind of have to ask myself, like, today's the big game, right? Is that what's happening today in our culture? Uh, because completely off my radar, like, I had to realize that it's Super Bowl Sunday on the way here this morning. And I thought, that's pretty crazy that I don't have an awareness about that. But I certainly didn't or don't. Awesome. Hopefully some parties today. It'll be a good time. I'm far more concerned with the Gospel of Mark and what we've been studying together. I'm far, far more concerned about what God is doing in our lives, I think, as we kind of put in uh, the scope of our experience in this life. There'll be nothing more important than the truth of Jesus Christ. And sometimes many other things um, get our attention. So putting it out there. Um, today I want to talk about two directions. We're going to get right into the words. I'm super excited to talk about it. We're going to talk about two directions and it's going in and coming out, right? Going in and coming out. It seems like it's such a simple thing, but we get it wrong so, so often. And today I'm so excited to talk about this from the Gospel of Mark. Before we get into the word we're going to do, we always do, we're going to pray and we're praying so that we might have understanding, that we might actually believe what we read, and we might change because of it, that, that God might change us because of his holy, inspired word to us. That's our prayer this morning. So I'm going to ask that you, if you would, that you would pray with me as we enter into uh, God's word this morning. Father God, we are in awe of your majesty. We've uh, sung about you this morning, your glorious grace, your goodness, your worthiness, who you are alone, worthy of all praise from all peoples and all creation. And today we come here recognizing that fact. We pray, Father God, as we come into your house, we're bringing a heart of worship, a heart that's bent towards you. And we confess, just like we sang, that we are sinners and we are in need of grace, that we bring nothing to you, nothing to your name. We come to celebrate with everyone else who you are and all that you do for your people we pray, Father God, this morning that um, as we come into this time in your word, that your word would be powerful in our lives, and that we would have an eye to see, an ear to hear, a mind to understand, a heart to believe, and hands and feet to live it out, to try with you in this life. We, we don't come as passive observers, as people who are spectators at an event. We come as participants with you in this process. Would you use us today, Father? Would you change us today? We trust you with this. We cannot do this of ourselves. Would you forgive us when we try? We worship you today. We praise you. We thank you. Bless your people. Draw them near to you. Encourage and comfort them and send them out. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So we're kind of coming off all this teaching of Jesus and the Gospels. The Gospel of Mark is absolutely packed, packed with the life experiences of Jesus. And you'll remember that last week we talked a lot about um, Jesus breaking bread and giving thanks and distributing bread to all of his people and how powerful that was and how the disciples thought there wasn't enough and there was more than they need, more than they needed, more than they could have imagined at their disposal if they would only trust God and, and, and believe. And then on the heels that I mentioned that because we're going to get right into a story this morning. This is in Mark chapter 7. I think it's page 704 if you're using one of our Bibles. And we're going to read these verses and I want, I want to talk through them. But we're going to come right on the heels of this with some Pharisees. So let's read the word together. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw that some of his disciples were eating food with hands that were unclean. That is, they were unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding on to the tradition of the elders when they come to the market, from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Because Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corbin, that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let that person do anything for his mother or his father. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition and you have, that you have handed down, and you do many things like this. Verse 14, again Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples asked him about this parable. Jesus said, Are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? Because it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared that all foods were clean. He then went on to say, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of the hearts of men, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. This is the word of the Lord. So Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's been doing amazing things. And the funny thing is we immediately see another conversation about bread. I know your interpretation might say foods, right? But it means the, the same word that we use for bread when we were talking about Jesus breaking the bread or Eucharisto and giving thanks. And on the heels of these great miracles and on the heels of all this stuff that Jesus has been doing, the Pharisees, notice what the word says, who have just come from Jerusalem. 
You'll remember that Jerusalem is the, the home of worship, right? It's the, it's the temple, the tabernacle, the holy of holies. And these righteous men come from the holy of holies, and the first thing that they see is Jesus' disciples eating food with hands that are unclean. Hands that are unclean means ordinary um, hands, um, regular, common hands. You see, immediately we begin to understand in the text that despite Jesus' disciples' own lack of understanding what he's doing, there are people from the outside who have no clue, no frame of reference, and they begin to say, um, you're eating with hands that are unclean, and there's an implication not like ours. If we were eating, our hands would be clean, but yours are not clean. <clears throat> and it's a charge. They immediately see it, and I want to, before we get to them talking to Jesus, I want to understand a little bit about what is happening that the moment that the religious people show up from the religious place, they immediately begin to judge the people of God for what they're doing. They immediately begin to separate themselves from the people that are following Jesus, learning from Jesus, growing in Jesus. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these, these guys knew, knew what God demanded, right? I mean, that's the implication they just came from temple. They know the law. They know the rules. Unless you doubt it, they will tell you what they are. So they come and they see Jesus' disciples walking, eating. We get a little bit of a, of a, a parenthetical comment here, which I love in the NIV. They make it in parentheses in verse 3. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they, their hands are clean from ceremonial washing because they're holding to the tradition of elders. I want to say a couple things about this. First of all, these men believe so strongly in the cleanliness of God and the holiness of God and this right requirement that they would rather starve to death than eat with hands that are not clean. You see what it says? They will not eat without it. The second thing I want to point out about this is that the idea of having ceremonial clean hands is a vigorous washing I was stunned to realize that it means to make a fist, you know, and you think, well, that's got to do with fighting, right? But it's this idea that you're scrubbing so violently, you're going to get yourself clean so that you might eat and not be unclean. I remember I worked for a while at, at Wash U in St. Louis, and they would have scrub rooms for the surgery suites. And when you were in a scrub room, you had, you had to wash your hands up to the elbows, right? When you were going in, you had to wash all of your hands. But more than that, every time they would, when it was a surgery, it was serious, they had to open a unique packet of soap. They had to tear it open, and inside it was like a Brillo pad thing. And they scour. I, I can't imagine that, that surgeons have any hair left on their arms because you just scrub and scrub. If you've ever had to scrub in for something, they're just trying to get all the germs and all the uncleanness off. Like, that's the idea of the ceremonial washing. Many times in, in modern religions, we'll see someone sprinkle water on their hands as a symbol of being unclean, you know. Just drizzle a little water. This is not what we're talking about here. They, they weren't thinking it was a symbolic act of cleanliness. They were making themselves clean. And you can imagine that if you've been the kind of person that's been raised and taught that you must clean yourself like this to eat, and you see people just eating without cleaning themselves like that, you think, well, hey, why do they get away with that when I don't? How can they do that? It begins to beg a question in you, like, is there something that I don't know? Is there something that they don't know? Who's right and who's wrong and why, right? And so they, they immediately have this churning inside of them. But I want to point out one more thing before we get to Jesus. It says that they did this vigorous 
violent, you know, compulsory washing that they've been doing since they were children to be clean because it was a tra tradition that was handed down by the elders. This word's going to come up many times in the text today. And I want to respect what it is. It means that at some point in their life, they were taken into a very close, proximal relationship with someone, and they were intimately handed off details of the law. This is how you do the law. This is how you make righteousness. This is what God demands. And, and they are taught in a very private setting. It's the, the word when it says to be handed off, it's a very intimate handing off, you see. This isn't a, a long Hail Mary pass. I hope you get it. This is the handoff. It's immediate. You, you, you don't want to drop this. This is precious. And these three things have ruled their lives. Elders. You would think with me, what's wrong with that? I go to church. It, it, we have elders here. If, if an elder said something, yes, it was, in, I, got a, I got something really important to tell you, a secret, a special thing. You got to do that also. And you begin to do it, right? And you begin to, oh yeah, I'm on the inside now. I'm clean. And this is the perspective from which they come. If you read on in verse 4, it says that when they come from the marketplace, that means where the common, common people are hanging out, right? When they come to the, from the marketplace, they do not eat. There it is again. They will not eat unless they wash first. And they observe many other traditions. There's the word again. Those are those intimate things that are handed down. They're more precious to you than anything in the world. They, they keep these traditions and they observe them in such as ways as, not, as the washing of cups in the same way. So you, now you see you've got cups that you drink out of. You scrub those cups really, really good because you want them to be clean too. And then um, pitchers, right, containers. And then we have uh, kettles. So you're washing more and more stuff to make sure that everything's clean. And so from this perspective, they have this holiness, this set-asideness, this righteousness. And they see these unclean, common men breaking bread with their bare hands. Something swells in them, this rabbi, Jesus, and what he's doing in verse 5. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus. It's funny, I've said it before, I'll say it a thousand more times if I have the privilege to preach here, that the word doesn't communicate that adequately. It means they indicted Jesus uh, they demanded an answer. This wasn't like a question you'd ask like, um, Jesus, um, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Um, I'm curious to know. That's not the kind of asking this is. This is like, Jesus, how could they do this? Don't they know what the law requires? It was a demanding request of Jesus. This isn't the kind of seeking that, that is postured in humility and wondering and honestly wanting to know it's an indictment. It's a judgment. And they're making it distinctly. They have no problem. How, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? They're so offended. And listen to Jesus' reply. So they, they kind of demand this of Jesus. But listen, listen to his reply. <laughs> he says this. By the way, don't forget. To the Pharisees and the scribes people who knew the rules and knew the law and ruled the roost. Isaiah was correct when he prophesied about you hypocrites. That was Jesus' response. Isaiah the prophet 
the one that you admire and study all day long, was right when he prophesied about you hypocrite. The word means pretender. The best way I can think, you ever heard that about church folks? They say, um, well, it's full of hypocrites. I would go to church, but it's full of hypocrites. And we go, oh, the church ain't full of hypocrites. You know, we're all sinners saved by the grace of God. But uh, can I confess something? Church, listen, we're kind of hypocritical. I mean, there's some truth to the charge. I'm not saying we're really hypocrites, but there are parts of our lives where we, we would rather, the, the word that helps me connect so much with hypocrite, because you think hypocrite has its own definition, like hypocrite, you know, two-faced, double-tongued, all this kind of stuff. Hypocrite means someone who is acting, who's pretending. I just talked this week to someone who said, fake it till you make it. As a believer in Jesus Christ, that's what their conversation was. You fake it till you make it. That's how you become a better disciple. You pretend you're better until you're better. That's the goal. I've heard that preached from pulpits. And yet this form of pretending, this form of acting, Jesus indicts as hypocrisy. And not just any hypocrisy, but hypocrisy prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. Oh, he was correct when he talked about you pretenders. This is the indictment that comes against the religious people. That you claim to know things that you do not know. You claim to have a relationship with someone you do not have a relationship with and, and you are leading people to hell with your pretending. And, and, and as much as their indictment is against Jesus to say, Jesus, how can they eat with unclean hands? He immediately responds and says, you hypocrites. And don't get this wrong. This isn't him being like, like real like, hey, you hypocrites. You know, like he's just kind of like, like a buddy, you know, slapping on the back. It's all good, you know. No, this is an offensive thing to Jesus that the very people of God would pretend to be something that they're not. Hypocrisy. There's an understanding when the, uh, of the Pharisees and the scribes come that not only should they know better, right? Not only should the disciples know better to do this, but Jesus should teach them better than this. The indictment is twofold. Listen to, the, listen to what Jesus does. First of all, can we just get um, some affirmation of Jesus' own reliance upon the word of God? Because listen to what he says. He makes this indictment. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, you religious pretenders. He was absolutely correct because it is written about religious pretenders. And this is what the word says. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. That word there is the same word that they say traditions of the elders you see they're they're clinging and claiming the tradition of the elders they're clinging and claiming this intimate relationship and this intimate knowledge and this scrubbing this cleanliness but Jesus's indictment comes not just with his own judgment which he has the right to do but an affirmation of what the scriptures say Isaiah the prophet says these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me an indictment from the Lord. This is the problem with hypocrisy. This is the indictment against the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law. And he uses the scriptures that they've studied their whole lives to refute their religious dishonesty. Lips and hearts. Jesus cuts it right there. Lips and hearts. We think, well, we know what that means, right? 
they say good things about God with their mouth, but there's nothing going on inside. That, that's intrinsically understandable. Even now, like some 2,000 years later, we can understand people who say one thing and do another. That's kind of what's being implied here. There's something that there's no life change. There's no internal um, relationship, spirit, heart movement. There's external exercising. I love this. The lips, one way in the original Greek that the lips is referred to is, is as an edge. I don't know if you ever think about that, but your lips being the edge of your, of your internal being, of the very outmost. It's the, last, it's the last form of defense that we have before we say something stupid is our lips. It's the very edge of who we are. And, and as I thought about that, you can think about this both ways in a minute. We'll unpack this all the way around. But Jesus is saying, you're, you're honoring me with the external things. The implication from God is that you honor me with all the external stuff. You get all the outside stuff right. But he's not impressed. Jesus is not impressed with the edges. He's not impressed with my edges. He's not impressed with your edges. He's not impressed with their edges. And they had the best edges of anyone. Like if anyone was going to impress Jesus with their righteousness, it was the guys who came from Jerusalem, who knew the law, and who could actually judge other people for it. That's how well they knew it. But he was not impressed with their edges. And he's not impressed with ours. They army with the very edges of their lives, the very peripheral, the things that ultimately don't matter. These trappings, these externalizations of truth. But their hearts are far from me. Not even close. Not even in the same county. This idea of, if you, if, if you think of two opposites, the, the lips being the edge, the heart is the center. The heart isn't your cardia. It's not that heart. That's not what's being referred to here. But it's this place where reasoning comes from, where your thoughts come from, where your passions come from, the thing that stirs you. This is our heart. And you can almost, if you listen to the text, you can almost hear the religious indifference toward people in their accusation. They're impressed with themselves and they're disgusted by the other. There's an implication. And that heart motivation, Jesus immediately sees it and calls it pretending. I wonder, listen, I wonder if they knew they were pretending. I, I wonder if people who are religious their whole lives know they're pretending. Do they say the right words? Do they give the Sunday school answers? Do they, do they answer Jesus to every question? Yet yeah, Jesus, yes, Jesus. But do they have an internal understanding? Are there, do they wrestle? Have they been formed and shaped? You see, that's the imagery we get from the scriptures about our relationship to God is, is it's not this external trapping. As a matter of fact, if you, you cannot read the New Testament without um, demanding the external trappings be taken away, you can't read it unless you see that that's in there. I can think of no New Testament passage where it says to put on external trappings, not one. This is confessional because, honestly, we put them on. We put them on too. And the danger is that in those moments of hypocrisy and pretending, that our hearts are drifting far from God, far from His desire, far from His mission, but we're quite pleased with ourselves. In verse 8, Jesus says it this way, you have let go of the commands of God and you're holding on to the commands of men. That's the allegation. That's the implication. And that's the problem. If you think of the traditions of men, it was this. <clears throat> the men have given us some things to do and we'll do them. And then we do them, we'll believe we're holy because men told us to do them. But Jesus says, no. You're doing the things that men told you to do but not doing what God has told you to do. The words are exactly the same there. 
doing the things that God has commanded, that God has told you to do. You have let go of what God had called you to do. And you're holding on to mere traditions. And then he gives an example in verse 9. So I want you to see that, right? This is the people of God who Jesus came to save. And they've let go of God's things for man's things. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing that we can all do. Verse 9. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Right? Man-made. Because Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And anyone who does not, who curses his father and mother must be put to death. That's the law. That's the command. That's what God has said should be done. Verse 11. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corbin, and we're talking about Corbin in a minute, that is a devoted gift from God, then you no longer let him, that person, do anything for his mother and father. In other words, here's the way I can unpack this a little bit. I don't claim to be an expert in this, but a little bit. You've been told to honor your father and mother by God. God has said it is good for you. As a matter of fact, that's the first command that comes with a promise, so you might live long in the land, right? That's what the Ten Commandments say. Honor your mother and your father so that you might live long in the land. But on top of that, the Pharisees and the scribes had created something called Corbin, which is a holy offering to God. And so if you can imagine the most literal way I can think of this is, say you were going to go do something for your mother and father, but on the way you remembered that it was supposed to be Corbin, you redirected yourself from honoring your mother and father, and you went to the temple to give them treasury, to give them money, on behalf of your mother and father. And then when you get to your mother and father, you say, anything I've done for you, it's been an offering to the Lord. And that is so subtle because you think, well, what's, what's the problem, right? I mean, they're, they're still keeping the command of honoring. And he says, no, because their hearts are far from the point. The point being that you're, it's enough to honor your mother and father. I would even say there's a bit more of an indictment of the church, I will say loosely, the synagogue, the, the Jewish leaders, redirecting what God had intended for someone else toward themselves. You want to honor your parents? Give more money to the church. You want to honor your parents? Donate. We'll put a plaque on something in the corner, right? Just, you, you can honor your parents that way. And Jesus seems to refute that when he says, no, it's enough to honor your parents. That's keeping the, the, the law that God commanded. That's honoring God by honoring your mother and your father. And then Jesus says this, interesting at the end. Thus, by doing these small things, you nullify the very, listen to the word, the very word of God by your tradition. You nullify the word of God by your traditions. That's crazy to me. You, you wonder, should we be suspicious of man-made traditions? Absolutely. Why? Because it can nullify the very word of God, his very desire for his people. He says, you nullify the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down to each other. And you do many other things like this. It's not like he's mad about Corbin. He's mad about this methodology. Mad's not the right word, right? It's a righteous indignation. He knows what God requires. And you'd rather keep the rules of men than honor God with your lives. This is the allegation to the religious pretenders. This is the steady... Um, call of those who don't have the courage to face the truth of a holy God. See, that's harder. 
If God has spoken, I'm accountable. But if I can just count instead on some man-made tradition that's been handed to me, I don't have to worry about this God character. It's good enough. In verse 14, Jesus goes on. Turning to the crowd, he says again, Listen, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside of a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. I'm going to say something that probably doesn't need to be said, but I'm going to say it anyway. When it says man, it means people, right? So he's saying there's no uncleanness that you can put in your mouth. Not only does Jesus not succumb to the pressure of the Pharisees and the scribes and those who are saying religious traditions where it's at, right? But he's saying, he's doubling down. He's like, no, nothing you do can make you unclean. Nothing you put in from the external can cause uncleanness in you. Instead, the things that come out from inside of you make you unclean. Very clear teaching. And I'm going to pause and say, Yet we struggle. <laughs> we struggle with external things. We struggle with judgment of others. We, we, we struggle with this. And this is where we get this indictment of hypocrites. Nothing. That blows me. I, I don't know if that shocks you. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going in. Even today, 2,000 years later, you would think, there's some things that I put in my body that's going to make me unclean, right? There's some things that I do that's going to make me unclean. Jesus says, no, it's not possible. There's nothing that can do that. But only the things that come out from the inside that make you unclean. And many, many of us run around with things inside us that are unclean and making us unclean, all the while externalizing our religion as if we're clean people, but we're not. I hope you hear that. This internal toil, this internal struggle, this taste, you know, and yet, I'm, I'm good, you know, Jesus. <laughs> Religious pretenders, church, come on. After Jesus had left the crowd in verse 17, he entered into a house in Oikos. His disciples asked him about this parable. I love this, man. Here we go again to disciples. I love, I love the grace for disciples, those who are willing to learn. They come and they ask. Now, this ask is an ask like that, like, oh, um, Jesus, um, can you explain that parable you just told about the clean and unclean? Because for them, there had always been clean and unclean foods. There's always been ceremonial clean and unclean. And they're like, did we just catch what we think you just said outside about being unclean and clean? And th is that real? Did that just, can you explain? Look at, look at 18. <clears throat> Jesus, are you so dull? <laughs> stupid. You so stupid. You, you want me to explain that to you again? Now, if you think the first thing where he says, you're hypocrites, Isaiah talked about you and he's right. The prophet talked about you and he's right. That was, like the, that was like the college level version of rebuke here. You know, this is like the really smart guys. And then the second was pretty clear. He turns to the crowd and he says, hey, just so you know, there's nothing that can make you unclean by putting it inside. Nothing you can consume that's going to make you unclean in front of God. It's not going to happen. That's like the high school level of, you know, uh, correction that Jesus is laying out here for his people. So you got college level, you got the high school level, and then here's Jesus when the disciples go like, um, can you explain that? He's like, all right, sixth grade math, here we go. You ready? Check it out. This is what he says. Are you so dull? Right? I know some of you don't like the word stupid, but that's kind of reminds me of like, are you stupid? Dull pencil, you know, round, nubby on the end, right? Um, don't you see? Can't you see? 
that nothing that enters a person's body from the outside can make him unclean. And this is the sixth grade schoolyard explanation. If you don't believe me, he's bringing this down. He says, because the things that you eat don't go to your heart. Look at the word. The things that you eat don't go to the center of who you are. They go into your stomach and then out. That's right. That's in the Bible. Can you say poop in church? Because that's what he means. That stuff's passing through. It's external. You've been walking around your whole life. You've been scrubbing your hands. I'm going to be clean one day. I'm going to be clean one day. And you're eating the bread. And it's just going in the toilet. That's it. It's gone. And you're not righteous. You're not clean. But you think you are. Schoolyard explanation. Doesn't matter. It's washed away. And then lest we readers not realize parenthetically here to double down, the author Mark says, in saying this, Jesus declared that all foods are clean. I, I want to give a little bit of uh, empathy here. You remember in the book of Acts, Peter takes forever to figure this out, right? Peter, nothing unclean shall touch my lips, Peter, right? And Jesus has to show him again and again and again, no, don't say the things that I say are clean or unclean, but the things that come out of the heart, there it is again. That's the problem area. And then in verse 20, this is what the word says. What comes out of a person is what makes us unclean. Because you see, the cleanliness that God desires is not external trappings. It's not pretending to be religious when you're not. What comes out from the inside comes from our hearts. And listen to the conviction of the word. It comes from evil thoughts that are inside us. This is the problem with what we want so much to change things through rules and regulations. We want to demand people be righteous, but it will never work because the evil, the word says, comes from inside us. It's not external. It's not them. It's us, and it's in here. We are broken people living in a broken world, and if left to our own devices, we will manifest broken things. And he begins to articulate that, and he says, evil thoughts come from inside. Sexual immorality comes from inside, right? Theft. Someone steals. It's not an external thing. It's inside. You've decided in your heart to do this. Murder, when you decide to kill someone, it's inside. It's not out there. No one caused you to do it. It's not because you were raised a certain way. It's inside of us. The battle is here, not out there. Adultery, it says, is inside. Greed, having to have everything for yourself, is inside. Malice and Deceit or deception, being lewd, being envious of others is inside us. The list, I mean, if you go through this list and you're done and you're like, not me, I don't know how you, I don't know how you can say that honestly. All these things, they live inside of us. Slander, talking ill of others inside of us, being arrogant. Now, wait a minute. Do you remember what we said at the beginning? The Pharisees and the scribes that came from Jerusalem saw the disciples and said, how dare they? And as Jesus makes his way down this list and you go, yeah, I'm not a murderer, but arrogance or foolishness comes from inside. And Jesus says this in 23, don't miss it. All these evils. You see, he doesn't diminish the problem men have, but he recategorizes it. He says, this is an external thing. You can't religious practice your way out of this one. You have an internal problem in your life. And these internal problems come out. 
and they make you unclean. I told you earlier we're going to come back to the idea of it being the edge. You know, much of spiritual discipline is about controlling our tongue, right? These things come inside. Jesus said what? From out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. These things that we speak out come from deep inside of us. And so therefore, church, listen, the change we want is not out here. It's in here. It's inside. And I would even say to you that we must guard against externalization of our faith. We must guard against thinking because we um, go to church on Sundays and because we are in a religious uh, school and because we have a cross necklace on our, on our neck or because we have a plaque on our wall or because we put scripture on our homes or because we've done these external things that somehow that is bringing about in, it's about a whole external holiness that, that it automatically means that our lives are right. Listen to me. Talk about hypocrisy. How many times in church have I heard people come wounded and hurt because they grew up in the household where people were externally religious but internally broken. And they say, I would believe in God, except when we got home after church on Sundays, it didn't look any different. Oh, let's don't. Let's don't. Let's be real. Let's ask God, change that part inside of me that I don't have to pretend. Least of all around the people of God. I'm reminded of this in my role as pastor. There's a tendency we have to go, oh, you shouldn't do those things because you're a pastor. Look, I'm not flouting freedom, but it's not who I am. I can be me. It's okay, and you can be you. God knows what you're doing. And it's far more important to we invite God into those internal parts of our lives that we might be truly clean, that we might acknowledge we're sinners, and no externalization is going to fix that. Jesus says, out of the stomach things pass, but out of the heart things come forth this direction. So many of the battles that we have in our lives are these, these manifestations. And this is what happens. We're doing life together as church. And life gets a little too real. And we say something. And we immediately know that shouldn't have come out. And then we go, oh, I'm so sorry. And we try to put it back. And no, we should say, that's inside of us. It's good that it comes out. We know it's there. God, would you help that part of my life? I don't know if I'm talking to you today, but this is the trap of hypocrisy, the danger of hypocrisy. So the question is, at the end of it all, why were the Pharisees and the, and the, the um, scribes more pleased to follow traditions of men than God? Why? I mean, you have God incarnate right in front of you. You have these unclean dudes who walk around saying, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus. And the Pharisees could have followed him, but the tradition was too strong. They wouldn't. Why? This might be hard, but this is what, you know, and just praying about it. If you give me something to do as a man, a woman, and you say this is righteousness, I'm going to think I can do that. That's reasonable to me. I can do that. Yes. Dress this way, yes. Act that way, yes. Say these words and not those words. Eat this and don't eat that. Drink this and don't drink that. Hang out with these people, not those people. I can do all this stuff because I'm a person and you're telling me and you're a person and we can do this together, right? And, we, and you kind of hold each other accountable, sort of, kind of, you know, like, yeah, we're doing pretty good. Yeah, we're doing good. We're better than those people. Woohoo, we're in. You know what I mean? And you begin to create this self-righteousness and that begins to sort of 
mask over that reality inside deep, but then what happens is you get so tired of pretending outside that when you get in those intimate spaces in your marriage, your children, or your life, your parents, all this stuff comes out and you're just like, because it's like trapped inside because you're always with your religious friends. You can't ever let it out. And all of a sudden you go, how did that pastor fall from grace? That's so crazy. And you go, oh wait, that was inside. That was inside. Why? Because we think we can. Listen. Do you know that God demands a righteousness of you that's perfection? Do you know he demands me to be perfect? You know why we don't want that? Because we can't. We can't. God, I can't be perfect. I read the story of your son. I I can't do that. And then God says, uh, I know. And that's why I send my son. Because what is not possible with men it's possible with god that's the good news it's not about why would you just deconstruct these religious teachings if you want them to continue he didn't the good news is that the kingdom is near and the king is here and the one who would give his life on the cross the one that's perfect without sin gave his life up that we might be free listen dale started out this morning he had that I think it's a seat seat, prayer shawl. Got the edges. Yeah, I love that image. And it's good as long as you see it as an image. He put it on like this, covering, right? The wings. He put it over his head and said, this is the tabernacle where I can get alone with God anytime. But if we go out and we buy seat seats and we walk around in public and we dress in them and we look and we externalize, we're missing the point that the seat seat, that the shroud that Jesus wore, that the people who clung right, if I could just get the edge of his garment, I'd be healed, wasn't about the seat seat, it's about the God who's in it. I love the imagery. I'm not rebuking. I hope you see the difference here. Jesus is the wings that wrap us in. Jesus is the hymn that if we just get a hold, we'll be saved and healed. Jesus is the temple that closes out the world. And you begin to find yourself stuck in this place of worship with God. And it's beautiful and it's relational and it's not dependent on man. You see, the problem is that if this is a God thing, we have to depend on God to do it. We cannot get there. And Protestants have failed as much as anyone else to make that right. We begin to make our own trappings for how you get to God. You say these words, you do these things, and then you're really holy. It's a God thing. The tzitzit is him wrapped around us, covering us, making us holy. Not our works, and not our dead hypocrisy. And yet we keep going back. See, if it's God, it requires God. That's what I'm saying, right? There's no other escape plan for you. You don't get a pass. It's God or nothing. I want to go back and I want to share with you from Isaiah. Isaiah 29, just hear the word. For you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. This is Isaiah. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read, and you say to him, read this please, he will answer, I can't read this seal. I can't read this scroll because it's sealed. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, read this please, they will say, I can't read at all. But the Lord says, these people have drawn near to me with their lips, their mouths, They honor me with their lips, 
but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up merely by rules taught by men. This is Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will, the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from Yahweh the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, well, who is going to see us? Who is going to know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall we that is formed, shall we, shall what is formed say to him who formed it, he did not make me, can the pot say to the potter, the potter, you know nothing. See, the, the fine thing is that when we stand in opposition to God, we make our own way. We make our own way. The good news, now listen, this is cool. Later on in the book of Romans, Paul's writing to the church. Paul, Pharisee, he's trying to explain the holiness of God, right? And this is the word that he says right here. This is, uh, I think I can pull it up here. It's Romans 10, 8 through 10, I think. Yeah, it says, the word is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith. And we are proclaiming that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, now listen, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We love that verse. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise. And then look, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess, and you're saved. You see, it's an internal change, but I got news for you. I've seen people, and they go, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, and they feign believing in their heart, God raised them dead, and they're hoping that somehow it's going to justify them. That's not what it's talking about. It's saying there will come a moment where God will compel you to salvation, and you will believe the good news, and it will be in here, and no one will be able to talk you out of it. I don't mean no one will try. I mean no one will be able to talk you out of it. Many will try. Don't believe in that Jesus. Peter later says, well, who else, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life, right? It's inside working itself out. And Jesus says, that's where holiness lies. If you believe Jesus is Lord in your heart, or if you confess with your lips Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him bodily from the dead, will be saved. I don't know if you believe that today. And I don't know if you've been stirred to responding. And so I'm going to invite you, if you have, to recognize that not as a us thing, a family Bible thing, and certainly not a Bill Dempsey thing. It's a God thing. Listen to the stirring. Don't go on in your life pretending religion when you are lost inside. Don't do it. Don't do it. Instead, throw yourself in the mercy of Christ and say, I need you. I know I need you. And be saved. Ultimately, it's up to God. It's not up to us. And yet, we make ready, right? We confess. I'm going to invite you to pray with me as we, as we end there. This utter dependence upon God to do anything in our lives, anything worthy of value, anything of value at all. But I'm going to ask that you would pray with me that God might do something. If you need that today, that God might do something on your behalf. We cannot do it. 
nor can you. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, the power, the truth, your scriptures, the people who have come and, and, and got it wrong. And, and Father, for the times that we come and get it wrong, where, where we become those whitewashed tombs, those external Christians who are internally broken. Oh God, I know that feeling. Father, for those places in our lives, would you give us the courage to respond to you and trust you? Father, I ask that, um, that those here today that need to know you in that way that, are, that have been stuck in that and they've just been pretending that, that, that they would stop and they would come to you. And Father, for us who, who know you but still have that tendency, just like your people Israel, to move back toward the constructs of men to, to satisfy each other and not satisfy you, would you call us to repent? Acknowledge you for who you are, our Savior and our Lord. You are so good. And we thank you, Father, for the gift of salvation given freely in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your deliverance from sin and from death and from hell, but more for your kingdom, for your presence, that we would rather spend time listening to you than time listening to someone else in our lives. Help us, Father, to be those kind of disciples. Today, Father, I'm going to ask, as your will leads, that you would move people by your spirit. May you be glorified as we seek you. In Jesus' name, amen.